Morning, everyone. You're struggling. I am. It's life. I want to struggle like that because that's in control. <laughs> well, bless your heart. <laughs> like Tennessee Ernie Ford used to say, bless your little pea picking heart or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you do. Eschatology and Bible history. Now, I'm trying to approach this in a way that we have a, at least a somewhat thorough look at the topic of eschatology, which is Bible prophecy, end times. But at the same time, I don't want to get so down into the weeds that we got to have to make three or four more pots of coffee, okay? So <clears throat> I won't be looking at every verse on this sheet, but I wanted, you know, those of you that keep these, I wanted you to have them in case you wanted to look them up. But I just want to flow through history, and again, I'm, I'm going to back up to a spot that we left off last week, because I don't want us, as we get involved in some of the stuff uh, in prophecy that kind of uh, intrigue everybody and give them the little goosebumps and stuff, the one thing I don't want us to forget is the fact that the central theme of prophecy is the same central theme of Scripture as a whole, and that is Jesus Christ. So I don't want that to get lost, because that is a critical, critical point, okay? And um, <clears throat> anyway, eschatology and Bible history, our first section, from Adam to Abraham. Again, you can see that little tiny group in there. That's a big chunk of history, but I'm not, we don't need to dwell there. But let's start with Adam in the garden, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses, I uh, wonder why things weren't looking right. Yeah, I may be slow, but I haven't stopped, okay? <laughs> All right, Genesis 2, there we go. 8 to 32, but I'm going to pick it up in, in verse 15, where God's command to Adam. <clears throat> then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree, uh, for, excuse me, commanded, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now, and then we can move on in, in verses 21 to 24. I'm not going to read that, but Eve is created. Remember, Chapter 2, and some people come up with some false teachings. They try to say between, you know, chapter 1 and chapter 2, that chapter 2 contradicts chapter 1 because not everything is in the exact same order. And, well, when did God create? And they just make a whole rigmarole about the difference in, in the way it's being presented. What chapter 2 is trying to tell us, is trying to teach us, number one is that, okay, because it's very clear in chapter 1, on day 6 of creation, God created mankind, both male and female. It states that right off the bat. It's undeniable. Now, in chapter 2, it's given us somewhat of a recap and filling in some of the details on how man was created. And it points out the fact that Adam, by himself, not good for man to be alone, so he was... A helper was created, and that's woman. Now, and that's all I'm going to say about it. I think you know the story. And then we get into chapter 3. We have the fall in verse 6. Uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the light of the eyes and that she, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So Adam standing there um, watching his helpmate being deceived. Uh, he stood there like the old bump on the log, so to speak. Uh, did nothing, said nothing, and uh, she was deceived. She ate, and, and here, and like a dummy, he ate. <laughs> okay? And, because, and that's why, you know, you read through the New Testament. Who, did, who, is, who's, who does God lay the blame on here? Adam, 
For in Adam all died, not in Eve. She was the helpmate. Adam was the man in charge, or supposed to have been. Didn't do it. So that's why it's laid at his feet, because it was his responsibility to see that it didn't happen. And then in 14 through 19, then now we've the curse is being pronounced. And one thing that is important to note here, and it's it's a beautiful thing in a way, that the in the midst of pronouncing a curse, redemption is also announced. Yes, it's it's in a veiled sense, but again, it's like much of it's like prophecy in general and well, revelation actually is that it's it's called what they call progressive revelation not progressive in the sense of progressive like in politics today yeah you don't want that but progress as it progresses as as the you read through genesis for example we get this little tidbit of information in 315 let me read it again um but i put and again and in pronouncing the curse, he starts with the serpent, which is actually Satan, okay? Satan indwelt that serpent. And I will put enmity, that strife, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, he gives it, right now the seed is identified as a he. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise him and, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So in the process, that Satan is eventually going to get crushed. And for all practical purposes, that, that was accomplished on the cross. And in, and in the process of that, the heel of the seed of the woman is the one he got hit. Right? He died but rose again. Now, what we've got here is that, that right there. Uh, you compare that now with 321 about the Messiah 321 and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them think about that right here I believe what we have behind the scenes there and we'll see that as revelation progresses as we move through scripture I believe what you have here is the first animal sacrifice. And it was, I believe it was explained to Adam what this was all about. I'm, I'm, I'm personally confident of that. You figure, well, how else do all the people that follow him prior to the law, you'll find animal sacrifices. Noah did it, well, right, right in chapter 4. Cain and Abel did a sacrifice. Abel's, Abel's was a fatling, a firstling from the flock. Cain's was food off the ground. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was not. Abel did it the right way. Cain did not. As a matter of fact, um, I find it interesting, I think it's Jude that points back about false teachers, apostates. They've gone the way of Cain. They're out there doing their own thing. Okay, that's a very mild way of putting it, but they're out there, well, God said, do it this way, but I'm going to do it that way. That's Cain. And then he gets all upset when God calls him out on it. Anyway, so we can see that. And then we move through. But again, all these things, and again, we have right here, I believe, sacrifices being established, later in Scripture to be explained. Okay, but again, these were all uh, signs these are all the uh, pictures, you know, types and symbols of what was to come. And again, there's a lot of pictures and types and symbols throughout the entire Old Testament. Okay, now, let's move. We're going to really jump here all the way to chapter 12. Well, no, the Noahic Covenant. I just want to say a few, just a little bit about the Noahic Covenant. And I just put that big, broad statement here from Genesis 6-1 all the way through 9:29. That's not, that whole thing isn't the entire covenant, but the covenant is in there. And you kind of to appreciate the covenant, you need to read the whole story, all right? But the one big takeaway from that is in chapter 9, verse 26. That's what I really want to focus on. <clears throat> now, this is, 
Again, the, the covenant was actually laid out here in chapter 9. The sign of the covenant was the rainbow, okay? Signifying, every time you see a rainbow, that's God's picture saying, I will never again judge the earth by a worldwide flood. No guarantee of local floods. <laughs> but as far as the earth is concerned, God is not going to judge the earth in that manner again. Next one's fire, by the way. But anyhow... Um, we'll be getting to that later on as well. So we read, we read through there, and in 926, Noah now, Noah blew it. He, uh, he got drunk, and some weird stuff went on there. We're not even going to deal with that story today. And as he woke up and found out and saw what was going on, and anyway... I'll just pick it up in verse 25. So it said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. Now Canaan was a descendant of Ham. Ham was the youngest son. And he was the one that kind of instigated the weirdness that went on there. Um, but in verse 26, it says, Blessed, this is, check the wording on this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. Hmm. The God of Shem. Now when you look through the lineage of Messiah, you can see it in Genesis 11 and in Luke 3, when he gives his uh, genealogy, okay, um, he goes, because Luke goes all the way back to Adam, uh, Matthew does not. Matthew Matthew starts his with Abraham. Okay, and again, and this is a very important genealogy too, because Matthew is coming from a little bit different perspective, and he goes, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he takes it in chunks like that just to uh, uh, describe it. But you'll see that, and that's important too, because from the line of Shem comes is Messiah is going to come. So that's what that that language talking about the God of Shem. God was going to use the line of Shem to bring about Messiah. Now, move forward to chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> now here's where it starts getting, we slow down just a little bit here, where the, uh, the initial foundational promises of the covenant, we find those right there in Genesis 12, verses 1 th- three. Now this is like the call. This is where the actual when Abraham was first called. Now this isn't actually the the covenant itself, but really the covenant is laid out and you just piece by piece by piece by piece. And we're going to see where it actually is nailed down. But here it starts. And this is all part of it because all this information is going to be restated and then other information is going to be added to this about the covenant. Now the Lord's the Lord said to Abram Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house the land which I will show you and right here and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you I will make your name great and so so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a huge statement right there, too. And so we know that Abram, well, I'm just going to start right off. Let's just go in order. Number one, I'll make you a great nation. Okay, Nationally, a great nation. Okay, that great nation specifically is the nation of Israel. And we will see that later on when we get down to Jacob. However, he says, I will make your name great. And his name was great right from the beginning. You, if you read through there, he was, a, he was, the Lord had blessed him a lot too with, with physical blessings. Okay? He was very wealthy. Uh, he had a lot of quote-unquote servants, people that worked for him. And he was very powerful. You read the stories in, uh, what is it, chapters yeah, 14 where they had the wars out there. He actually, uh, he had enough people, 
He turned the tide where there's kings fighting each other. He joined up with one group and defeated, because of him, defeated the other group. So he was powerful. Abraham, (laughs) he was no slouch. This guy, he had it. All right? And so then we, uh, so he had a great name even from the beginning. And right now, too, look at all the people. He still, to this day, you go, if you were to, I bet if I was to ask people, list your, the top ten Old Testament saints, I bet you Abraham would be in everybody's list. Abraham. Moses would be there, Elijah, and some others. But Abraham would make that list. Okay? I think without a doubt. Now, <clears throat> and then you shall be a blessing, and that he was. We'll, we'll just, and he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, or, or those who curse you, I will curse. That's actually more <laughs> pointed when he says, anybody that curses you, I'm going to curse them. All right? And you can see that through biblical history. Even those nations that God used to judge Israel, he judged them for their maltreatment of Israel because many of them went way overboard. And uh, plus the fact that he was using nations that already hated Israel. And, um, but again, those are accounts that to be studied at a later time. Not in this particular uh, <clears throat> prophecy study, but uh, if you ever do an Old Testament study or survey or study of Genesis or something. Or the, anyway, and again, that last statement, which is huge, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Two big things here. Number one, everything that is said of Abraham as far as, and again, this is speaking in a salvific perspective, in terms of salvation, not nationality or culture or anything like that, but in terms of the blessings that are come because Messiah is coming out of Abraham. Messiah. Shem, Abraham's in that line, and it keeps going. David, Christ. I mean, the whole thing. This, because on you, all the families of the earth will be blessed because all the families of the earth have access to the Messiah. Okay? And that's the big deal. That's what this is talking about. Look at Galatians 3.8. And I'm going to back up and pick it up in verse 7 because it sets the context of really what the Lord was speaking about when he says, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we can just go back to verse (laughs) 6. Keep going, I'll be back at 1-1, but no, we can't. (laughs) Verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay? Because, again, believe God by faith. Justification is by faith. Therefore, those of us who believe, righteousness is reckoned to us or imputed to us. Okay? Now, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of... Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Spiritually speaking, to be spiritual sons, that's a... and daughters. uh, Sons, that is a matter of faith. To be, quote-unquote, sons of Abraham, one must have the faith of Abraham. And we're talking saving faith. All right? Which Abraham... And Abraham, as you go through his life, he was not perfect either. He was not perfect either. He made a several major faux pas, as they say, okay? Major. And so then, verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and that's that's the theme of Galatians. Justification by faith, not works. I mean, you go back to the early, you go back to chapter 1 of Galatians, I mean, it's, all, it's, it's in a mocking tone uh, that Paul writes and says, boy, boy, so quickly you've, <laughs> you've kind of cast it off the gospel it's, uh, and going back to works. Like, my goodness, you know, turn my back for a minute and there you go. You know, it's, that's kind of the idea. But here we are, he says, so he's making this point throughout this book. 
and he says that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now listen to this. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And how did he do it? Saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. See that? We're talking one that truly believes unto salvation is of Abraham's seed, spiritually speaking. That's the whole point of this. And that's where Abraham is so critical. Yes, he is the father of the Jewish nation, Israelis. Yes, indeed. But he goes way beyond that. As a matter of fact, we're not going to do that in our study here, but you, you, Ishmael, he's, he's father physically also of many nations, just going out the other side. And then when you start the splits, like any genealogy split, nations, nations just popping up all over the place. So, uh, so spiritually speaking, he's going to be the father of many. Physically speaking, he's going to be the father of many. It, it, both ways. Did somebody have a question or something somewhere? I saw, or just praising there, I don't know. Anyway, all right. That's it. Okay. Now, chapter 15, Genesis. It's nice, in one way, it's nice working out of Genesis. We, we all know where that book is. <laughs> okay, Genesis 15, 1 through 4. Abraham promised a son. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And uh, <clears throat> Abram said, O oh, Lord God, wilt that, that, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of, the, of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, if you don't have a son of your own, you go to your your top man of your <laughs> that's in your household of your servants, and there would be would the offspring, the descendant would come out of him. Okay. However, verse four. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, "This man, that's Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir." And then he took him outside and look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. He's speaking of the physical sense there. Okay? Um, and that is true when you start looking through the, his genealogy going forward from him and all the splits, and they're just all over the place. Okay. Now, Yahweh guarantees the covenant. Verse 15, 5, we just read 5. Again, then, verse 6, then he believed, that's Abram. See, God said, you're going to have it like, the, you can, if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. It's, again, a, a uh, figure of speech. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Again, he says, I am the Lord who have brought you out of the land of Ur, of the Chaldees, to give you this land to possess it. Does that term sound familiar? I am the land that brought you out. Okay. He's, he's said that many times to the nation after he, the, the nation was brought out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Again, that's, that's God reminding people who's in charge of this thing. By whose power are these things taking place? Who's making it happen? It's God. To just remember that. He says, and he said, oh, Lord God, how many, I, I know I will possess it. And he said to him, bring me, and here, this one's kind of important. Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each an opposite side of it. Can you see that? You, you take up the animals, you cut them in half right down the center, and lay one half over here, one half over there. All right, it's kind of like a pathway between them. Just kind of picture that as we read here. 
Then he brought, verse 10, they brought all these things to him and cut the, each one and laid each on the opposite side. And he, but he didn't cut the birds, so you know, just put a bird here and a bird there. <laughs> and the birds of prey came down and upon the carcasses, and Abram just drove them away. So Abram said, you guard them, you know. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and terror and great darkness fell upon him. We had a kind of a bad dream. And God said to Abram, verse 13, speaking of the prophecy, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Interesting. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. What God is prophesying to Abram or Abraham in that dream was the future Egyptian captivity. And verse 15, it says, And for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. That's talking about Abram. He will, you're going to live your life. You're going to go to your fathers in peace. You should, be, you should be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Interesting. Okay. By the way, you know, that's going to happen in the future. In the meantime, you're going to live your life. It's, everything's going to be good. You're going to have a nice life. And then later on, the fourth generation, you know, that 400 years after those guys have been in captivity, then they're going to return um, to the land where they were taken from. They'll be, be led out of the land of Egypt, and then the Lord will remind them throughout the Old Testament from that point on, I am the God who led you out of the land of, Cap- of Egypt. Okay? Now, The covenant now, we can move on. Again, verse 18 to 21. Let me read that. Because here, oh, wait a minute. Time out. Big point, verse 16 or 17. Here is where a real sign of a covenant happens. And it came, excuse me, 18. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, here's where he's like, this is a picture of the covenant being made. Right here. This is a very key passage. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. This is important when we get later, when we start talking about the kingdom, whether it's the millennial kingdom. And we're going to do, do a whole series. I don't know how many days it's going to be on what the heck is the kingdom? <laughs> what is it? What was it in the Old Testament? What was, what is it? What is it now? What's it going to be in the millennium? What about after that? Is the kingdom quit? No, kingdom is everlasting. So stay tuned. All right. <laughs> okay, to your descendants I have given this land, and he describes the land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now the river in Egypt is most likely... Those of you that have a clear picture of Bible lands, you know that little Sinai Peninsula that kind of looks like a heart? There's a little river in there. It's, it's, sometimes it's na- labeled the River of Egypt. Okay? Um, I believe that is the little the river they're talking about. It kind of, from that point, if some, like in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, and then from the Sinai Peninsula, then you're into Egypt, right? You've got that little chunk in there. From there all the way over to the Euphrates River, which is in Iraq today. So, so anyway, that is the promised land. That is... It's more than what Israel has Oh, yeah, much more. Much more. Yeah. So that... Uh, but then... This promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. They've never really had that. Never. It's always been somebody else in some part of it. <laughs> okay? Um, even under Joshua. Right? Even under Joshua, they didn't even have Jerusalem. They, they, didn't, they didn't take a hold of that until David. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they, they had many... Uh, 
incomplete goings on there. But that's, yes? That's not describing the promised land when out of the exodus of Egypt you're saying it? Or is it, it is, but they just haven't had all that land. It is the promised land, and they never really, this is the promise of the covenant land. They went in there, and you, you read the stories in, in Joshua and Judges, and especially in Judges. By the time in Joshua, even they didn't get it all, and they were admonished toward the end of the book, like, "Hey, you know, one try to, you know, you about ready to do something here? Just go and finish it." And then by the time you get the judges, they're just they're just so wishy-washy on everything. You know, now we're sinning, now we're not. Now we're sinning, now we're not. And every time they fell into sin, the Lord would raise up a judge, bail them out, but they never, on their own followed up on what God commanded them to do, what God gave them. They never, because quite honestly, and Scripture pulls it out, they never had faith enough to get it done. It's that simple. They never had the faith enough to get it done. So it didn't get done. So once again, there's a promise that if it's going to happen, and it will, God's going to have to do it for them. And he's going to do it. He will do it. And that's all prophesied in Scripture, and it's still future from us. The only question is, what part will we have in it? Stay tuned. <laughs> the covenant. Now, the covenant of the promised land, verses 18 to 20, we're still in, in uh, 15. No, excuse me, we didn't do 17 yet. 17, and it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Boy, thankfully I didn't forget that. That's kind of critical to what I'm trying to say here. That flaming torch. Didn't see anybody carrying it. That flaming torch passed between. There's not a lot on these kinds of covenant rituals, if you will. But generally speaking, what would happen if that covenant... If that covenant was, you know, to be made between two people or peoples, you would have the two walking side by side between those pieces. But all there was was a flaming torch that went between those pieces. That flaming torch was what has already been referred to as the angel of the Lord, which is God himself. And you're going to see very often, and we're going to see it here even, that the, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is what they call a theophany, or more literally a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that did a lot of that, the angel of the Lord. And we're going to see in, in language as... as in some of the languages as we keep reading that I'll be pointing to uh, uh, the way things are said and the words used, that it, just, it just points right to the Lord, right to Christ himself. Now, that's the guarantee of the covenant. Now, Abraham, again, the covenant restated. And it's just like, as we move further into this, the Lord just keeps nailing this thing down, making it like, he keeps repeating it, again and again and again, um, <clears throat> that it's going to happen. I mean, he's, he's pounding this team. You can't miss this, okay? It's not just said once and gone forever. But I think, too, why it's stated so often and, and the re- repetition is because the Abrahamic covenant is an extremely important covenant, even, even for the church to understand, okay? We're not Israel, okay? The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church, Another lesson to come, <laughs> but just kind of an introduction to one that's out there somewhere that you just a lot of people conflate the two, you know, nor has the church taken Israel's place. Now, that didn't happen either, you know, so we're again, we'll be going into those things as, as time moves on. Now, Abraham, again, to be the father of many nations, verses one to six, he goes, I'm now when Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's pretty plain, isn't it? And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face 
And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Okay? And again, which some say, you know, that had to be kind of embarrassing to Abraham. The Lord changed my name to mean a father of multitude. I don't even have one kid yet. But that shows you the kind of faith he had to have. I mean, think about it. I mean, he could be held up to ridicule if, if some would so desire to do so. He goes, verse 6, And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. Verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Now this is important for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Okay? Very important. If the church replaced Israel God just told a fib we'll get back to that one day and I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings and all the land all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession everlasting not temporal and I will be there and I will be their God again Check the word, I will be their God. And when we get down the road, we're going to look at some of those Old Testament prophecies like, oh, Jeremiah 31, 31, Ezekiel 26, where it talks about it. I will take that heart of stone, make it a heart of flesh. I will be their God. Okay, all this is going to happen, and it hasn't happened now because it's talking about Israel National Israel as a group, a whole group, as in 100% of Israel will one day be saved. But again, remembering that not all of Israel is Israel in a saving sense. But we'll get there. Just priming the pump, as they say. Okay, And then the covenant, as we just said, is an everlasting covenant. Now the sign of the covenant... We know that, that sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which applies to all of Israel in the physical sense, is circumcision. We don't need to talk about that. I think we all know that. And then Sarah, to give birth to a son. This becomes very important. 17, 15 through 22, Sarah is going to have a child, a man-child. Then God said to Abram, as, your, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram, Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Well, the answer to that, if God said so, yeah, that's going to happen. They needed a little bit of convincing, but um, later on, Sarah also laughed. I'm going to move forward to 18, 11 through 15. It says, now Abram and Sarah were old and advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. All right. 99, she's gone. She's past. That's it. Time's up. No kids. And Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I become old, I'm... Shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old and also? And the, and the Lord said, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, I shall indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? We know the answer to that one, don't we? No. Anyone that can speak the universe into existence can handle this. This is nothing. And the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. No question about it. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And, and, and he said, that's the Lord talking. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> You're not getting by with that. <laughs> no, you did laugh. Okay. Now, what I need to show ourselves, we need to look at. And it, it's in 
back to chapter 17, 18, and 19, it says, you're, you're, not only you have a son, but you're going to name him Isaac. Right? You're going to name him Isaac. And we'll, we can talk about that another time. That's not that important. But Isaac, I think, means the name itself means to, to be laughed, to have laughter and stuff, you know. <laughs> He's a happy child, yeah. Now, compare with, let's look back, let's back up a little bit to Genesis 11, verse 30. Remember, Sarah, old, beyond child-rearing age. There's no water in the well. I don't know how you put that. Anyway, that's it. No more. It's even bigger than that. 1130. And Sarai was barren. She had no children. Right from the wedding day, with Abram and Sarai, she was always barren. She could not have children. She just couldn't. She couldn't have children. She was barren. Let's move forward to Genesis 25. So, you talk, here you have a woman that's beyond childbearing years, who was barren to start with, bingo. She conceived and, have, and had a bit boy. Genesis 25. Why am I in 27? Okay. Genesis 25, verses 20 and 21. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the, the Aramean of uh, Padanaram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. This seems to be a practice of the Lord to demonstrate his power to his people, especially in the Old Testament, about the fact that God can take someone that is barren, a per individual that in a situation of impossibility and just turn it around. Make it possible. Make it happen. He did that with Sarah. He did that with Rebecca. And reminds me of a couple more stories. We won't turn there, but in Luke chapter 1, remember an elderly couple named Elizabeth, Zacharias and Elizabeth? What were they praying for for years and years and years and years? Have a child. And so, and we know from the story that they were righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And so he sent angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, a very powerful angel, by the way. And um, he said, Zechariah, you and your old age, you, the Lord's heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. By the way, you're going to name him John. And unless you could have any kid, but that son's going to be John the Baptist. And then I think of another at that very that same time, another young lady, Mary, who was a virgin, and she goes, and the angel Gabriel shows up to her and says, "You are going to conceive and have a son." And she says, "How can I have a son? I'm a virgin. I've never even known a man." God's going to have it. You'll be the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And then we can see, back to Genesis, we can see the covenant then is going to pass through Isaac. And then, do we have time, I hope, I hope? Genesis 22. We'll teach, teach by faith. <laughs> see, see, we, if we, see if we can do this in a couple of minutes. You're very familiar with this story anyway, and I don't see anybody wandering around out there anyway. Nobody with a hook, you know. <laughs> the shepherd's staff. <laughs> Okay, verse 22, uh, verses 1 through 19, we know the story. Um, verse 11, I'll pick it up there. Oh, I want to pick it up in verse 5. Um, I need to go back to verse 2, excuse me. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Verse, verse 1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take now your son, your, oh, yeah. This term, this verbiage comes up over and over again in this account. 
Take now your son, your only son. And that is expressed throughout this chapter. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Remember how tough it was getting this kid into the world? Now, and go to the land of Moriah, the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering. Wow. On, the one, on, on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, so on the third day he went, verse 4, now verse 5, and Abram, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. We, me and the boy, me and Isaac, we're going up on that hill, we're going to worship God, and we will come back. Okay? And Abram took the wood and all that and went up there. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, verse 7, my father. And he said, here I am, son, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the bird offering? Boy, that had to, <laughs> right in the old chest, huh? Like, oh, my goodness. And um, Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. So they came to the place which, uh, which, was, called to the told, which was told to them. And he put the wood on. Isaac was on there. And then verse 10, Abraham stretched out the knife to slay the son. But the angel of the Lord, remember, the angel of the Lord, that's, I believe, a pre-incarnate Christ speaking there. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I, here I am. He's like, man. <laughs> and he said, do not stretch out your hand against this lad and do not to him what I, what I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Just like the father did not withheld his son, his only son from us. For, or for us, I should say. Okay, I mean that 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 verbiage is not coincidence, by the way. None of this scripture is coincidence. Okay, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went out and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Now, a few little points here. That mount, the, uh, <clears throat> Moriah, the, the God will provide Jehovah Jireh, a symbolic name for Mount Moriah, where many believe the temple was going to be built, where all the sacrifices were going to be made through the temple system. Others think it could be also, because remember, it was the land of Moriah, not Mount, they didn't call it Mount Moriah, just the land. There was an area called Moriah, and it had several little hills. Okay, some believe, and we don't know for sure, that it could also be a hill near the temple site. Perhaps the hill known to us as Golgotha, or Golgotha, could be that hill too, just as easily. We're not told, but I find it very interesting. The land of Moriah, if you will, where that sacrifice was to be held, was that same area where the temple was eventually built and where the Messiah was eventually crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I find that extremely interesting and non-coincidental. <laughs> non-coincidental. And of course, he, he honors his faith um, and he just basically reinstates everything he's already and then finally the covenant promises are are going to be what are we doing out there uh, Genesis 35 this, this one minute Genesis 35 9 to 12 then God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padanaram, and he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. 
And thus he called him Israel, and God uh, said to him, I am God the Almighty, be fruitful, multiply, nation, and a company of nations shall come from you. Again, that whole thing is that Abraham, Isaac, just pass on through from one generation to the other to the other to the other. Verse 12, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give it to land to your descendants. See, that, the land is part of that Abrahamic covenant, and that hasn't been taken away either. Okay? And then in, we move forward to chapter 49, at the end of Jacob's life, the end of 49, where he's pronouncing blessings on all of his sons. And as a matter of fact, he's getting ready to pass on. Concerning Judah, the, son, the, one, the one son Judah. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. <clears throat> your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall be bowed down to you. In fact, Judah, you look through his, his, Judah was a very tough nation. They were stout. Also, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the, uh, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion who dares rouse him up, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the rulers of staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be obedience to the people. And if you were to compare that to Revelation 5.5, 5, and I will do that as quickly as I can get there, where it says, And one of the elders said to me, that would be John in this instance, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as, as to open the book and its seven seals. This is all moving toward Messiah. It's all moving toward Messiah. From Genesis, from the fall, basically, just, I mean, it's so clear. From 315 all the way to the end of Revelation. It's all about Messiah. It's all about Christ. And with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for the even the clarity of, prof, of your prophecies once we gain at least a little bit of understanding. And Lord, we just we stand in awe of you and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.